Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Legal Tech Week. Uh, it is December 1st, 2023. We were all off last week for Thanksgiving. Hope everybody had a good one. And uh, so plenty to talk about this week. This is the show where we talk about the stop stories in legal tech and innovation with our panel of AI experts and legal tech geniuses here, uh, here to share their insights and knowledge. And let's go around and introduce ourselves, starting with Victor. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Victor Lee. I am Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal. Um, you might see a lot of Legos in the background. Uh, my son is slowly taking over my workspace. So probably in a few weeks, I will have nowhere to sit for these days. So. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. And and this was this was the week in which I was uh, giving the ABA Journal a hard time because I couldn't get access to one of their articles, only to find whose out fault I hadn't was paid it? my ABA whose dues. Fault was it? Yeah, whose fault was it? <laughs> I thought I had paid it, uh, but uh, now I can get access to the article. Uh, all right, and uh, Nikki Black. Uh, thanks. I am Nikki Black. I'm the uh, head of SME and external education at my case in LaPay. I write legal tech columns for uh, uh, Daily Record, Above the Law, ABA Journal, and I also oversee and write our benchmark reports and uh, our legal industry report, which I just submitted the draft to be copy edited internally. So it'll be ready soon. I'm excited about that. Looking forward to talking to you. Copy editors when you get chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Stephanie. Um, hi, Stephanie Wilkins. I'm editor-in-chief of Legal Week, not Legal Week. That tells you what I've been working on all week. Legal <laughs> Tech News at ALM. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> also Legal uh, Week. I'll just be in charge of that, too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And Joe. Hey. hey uh, happy holidays, everybody. Let's, this works. Does it? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Like, oh. It's supposed to be mm. confetti. I don't know if that, yeah. All mm. right, anyway. Um, <laughs> hi, uh, Joe, Joe Petrucci. Yeah, I know. I, it's, it's supposed to be, two of these is supposed to be, I don't know. I'm working with the new system. This is supposed to be fireworks. I don't know. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, so uh, so Joe Patrice from <laughs> Above the Law and the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. It is uh, holiday season. I have uh, a tree back here. I also am going to begin uh, my advent calendar. Uh, because it's that time, and it's going to give Mamie see a bottle of Maker's Mark. So <laughs> I've got a whiskey-based uh, advent calendar here. So I will kick it off with that. So every every day will be a different bottle of little whiskey. Yeah, yeah. Like it looked, I took out what day one. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Good. All right, and uh, from the uh, whiskey capital of the world, Steve Embry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Steve Embry here. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads. Uh, I was going to point out to Joe that I think Advent is is not ninety days. I think it's a little shorter than that. So, <laughs> <laughs> but and I too am in the Christmas spirit. You can see my little pissant tree behind me. It's nothing, nowhere near as glamorous as Joe's is, but. That kind of sums up the difference between Joe and I anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while, while we were away, and, and Stephanie, you pointed out that may, maybe we ought to go back and talk a little bit about what happened last week with OpenAI, uh, because it was uh, uh, everybody else was talking about it, so why the heck not? Um, yeah. Was that just last week? That was just last week, right? Yeah, it took me uh, a minute yeah. when I suggested that. I'm like, was that last week? I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, of course, it's not directly legal tech, except insofar as everybody in the legal world is suddenly obsessed with open AI and as is the rest of the world. Uh, but uh, I know I know that you guys ha had a piece, uh, I forget whether it was Isha or, or Sandra or somebody did a piece on uh, kind of what, what, what were some of the reactions from the legal tech world to all the uh, intrigue uh, and, and corporate uh, comings and goings last week. Um, oh, that's right. I just saw the comment, Mark Palmer. It was two weeks ago on this show that the um, oh, that's right too. The announcement that the first Sam Altman is out announcement came out. That's that, right. That's right. You can kind of say we broke it here, uh, mm -hmm. except that we were just reading the news coming from somewhere else. But that's okay. Um, 
And uh, so I don't know. I mean, what, 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 <laughs> is there anything to be said about that from a legal text perspective? What did, what did, what did uh, you find in your article or your magazine's article and, and what, uh, you know, kind of what's your take on, on all of that? I mean, it, it was a little bit of a mix. I think Nikki was one of the people quoted, so she could also chime in on what she said in it. But um, I mean, some people, I mean, some people have been questioning longer before this, like even when there were all the lawsuits starting to be filed against OpenAI of, you know, should you be hedging your bets a little bit? Should you be wedded to a single model in all your legal tech tools? Do you want more flexibility in case, say, I mean, this was before anyone thought that weekend was going to come along, but say there was suddenly like an injunction against them and your AI model was gone. What would that do? So, I mean, this raised more questions of that. And I think more people are being a little bit more thoughtful about maybe diversifying and taking multi-model approaches. And there are other people that are just like, stuff like this always happens. We're going to keep going forward, which is, I mean, I think the reality of it is that, I mean, yeah, it, it's food for thought, but at the end of the day, open AI is going to open AI. And what are we going to do about it? We're just going to keep going forward. It, it seemed like the board got its advice on how to deal with Delaware charities law from chat GPT, <laughs> because it, uh, <laughs> Seemed like a bit of a, a frenetic uh, running around, and I'm not sure entirely legal before it was all over. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I do think that I had the most insightful comment in the article, if I may say so myself. Um, That's no, why I, I left it to you to say in your own words, Nikki. <laughs> I don't think it was the most insightful, but um, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be interviewed, and uh, my take on it was um, that you know, uh, some companies jumped the gun real quick, like in the beginning of the year and rolled out, you know, through one um, generative AI company, usually chat GPT or GPT powered um, one or two functions. Right. And then you have the larger companies like Thomson Reuters and Lexus coming out with like multiple pronged functions. And my take on this was that, you know, they're relying on multiple different generative AI tools <clears throat> to power their um, features in their uh, software. And my take on it was that I think that uh, given the instability in, you know, this space right now that was clearly evident from that uh, tumultuous weekend, uh, companies that are being thoughtful about implementation uh, may be um, uh, in a better position at this point, uh, ultimately, because they're not stuck with one tool that they've implemented and they're able to kind of navigate this space and uh, in a way that's a little bit more thoughtful uh, and hopefully will be to the benefit of their customers. So that was my take on it. Whether it was the most insightful or not, I don't know, but that was my take. And I enjoyed having a chance to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, other, I think there were yeah. other members of the audience that were quoted in it. So I don't know if you want to really start claiming the best yet, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of, one of the best takes I, I, I heard about this, and it actually is not legal tech related, was I guess on the Daily Show, they were like, well, what is it about these Silicon Valley companies just in general that have such a cult-like atmosphere that if the boss walks out, people are like, oh my God, I'm coming with you or I'm going to jump off with you. Like most people, I think the boss leaves are like, okay, well, I'll see you later. <laughs> Good luck. You know, <laughs> hopefully the next guy comes, the next person that comes in will be will be better. I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely, and, and I think I, I was talking to Nikki about this earlier, just kind of, it's ironic that you have like this forward-thinking company that produced such an innovative product false victim because old-fashioned you know backroom backroom like struggle power struggle board intrigue whatever you want to call it you know it's just kind of shows you at the end of the day it's like oh i mean we're all yeah we're all motivated by the same things right then you start to see some of the backlash against the backlash i mean there has then started to be some sort of negative various negative articles coming out about sam altman uh, about you know his his profligate spending on properties all over the world and the fact that he was possibly uh, ousted uh, uh, from uh, uh, the, uh, from what, I can't even think of the name of the uh, uh, startup uh, accelerator uh, program he was running before the, the startup accelerator program. Y Combinator? Uh, y Combinator, thank you. Um, and, you know, things like that. But uh, uh, I, I think, I do think that point that, that, that that, that Nikki made is an, is an important one because it was kind of interesting because in the in the early days of this year, um, when when some of the companies were were refusing to say which large language models they were using or were saying oh we're just kind of using a hodgepodge we're, we're using whichever one works best for the particular use case, um, 
I, I had some people say to me, oh, they're just saying that because they don't want to pay for open AI because it's the most expensive one and they want to use a cheap one, but they don't want to say that. But in fact, you know, you're right. That turns out to be a sound policy uh, in order to 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 build your products that they can uh, adapt to different models and use different models. And I mean, it, it does appear to have proven out, at least from I, I mean, I can't attest to this directly, but from conversations with uh, a lot of the developers around products uh, in this area, that some of the large language models are good for some tasks and some are good for other tasks. And uh, there isn't one, you know, sort of one size that's perfect for all, all purposes here. So uh, uh, that's, that's certainly going to be important going forward, I think. The um, other thing that I think is, uh, you know, and the fallout from it, learning about, you know, the potential issues that may have given rise to his initial ouster, which were people concerned about um, ethics and regulation versus people that just want him and apparently the people on his side that just wanted to roll it out really quick and everything be damned. It does not bode well for humanity the way that the the chips have fallen post uh, ouster. So I, I still very much think that either the simulation is just going to get shut off or else the robots that I continue to welcome are going to take over at some point. So we all got to, you know, this, this may be the, the honeymoon may be over. I think this was the honeymoon 2023. And now the, the it's stuff is going to hit the fan. We'll see. Or the odyssey, if you will. <laughs> and this was the, uh, well, I guess the one year anniversary, what of the launch of, uh, of chat GPT and yeah, uh, Stephanie had a, a wonderful, uh, feature in, uh, uh on law.com. Um, well, Thank you can you. tell about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I I had a lot of fun with it because I got to be. I mean, I didn't do the design. I can't take credit for that, but got to be a little creative and artsy. Yeah, I just did my twenty twenty three illegal AI odyssey while I was watching two thousand and one in the background, um, <laughs> which inspired the art, the cover art. But um, yeah, just the crazy ride that we have been on. It's just like, I think we've gone back to this multiple times of like, you forget how fast this is all moving. And if you like, look, if you break it down, and I mean, this like, this barely scratches the surface, right? There's a million things that could have gone in this, but I tried to pick some, some interesting highlights for the legal world that we've covered. And we've talked about a lot on this show too, but just like to go from where we were, Oddly enough, bookended by launching OpenAI to OpenAI's crazy roller coaster weekend of leadership. But yeah, I mean, some of the things I was putting in there, I was like, that was in June. Oh, what was that? And you know, there's the whole starting back with do not pay and their their, you know, publicity stunt. That felt like three months ago to me. And that was actually almost a year ago. It's it, it's it's just a crazy retrospective to look to put together and in the end, I thought it was positive to see how quickly we've moved in terms of, you know, the hype and the fear. And then now it seems a little bit more realistic with so much more to go. But I had a fun time putting it together. Yeah, I thought it's I think it's a wonderful resource. And I also sort of love the interactiveness of it and the way that it does. You can start right at the beginning and see and you know, as I've said all along, like when people will say, well, people are adopting solely. I'm like, let's just get back to reality about how long this has been going on. And that does a great job of kind of grounding you in that reality of how it has been such a short amount of time and just getting a sense of all the different things that rolled out. It was a really, it's a really valuable resource. I really liked it. Yeah. It's a great piece. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and since you mentioned do not pay, that was something else that happened last week. <laughs> I guess it happened. No, I think that also happened like on our last show or during our last show or something, the news broke about, the fact that the uh, lawsuit uh, that that lawyers had brought against do not pay, basically alleging that it's engaged in uh, unauthorized practice of law, uh, was dismissed uh, by a court in what was that in Chicago? Was it in Chicago? I forget where it was now. Um, in uh, in Illinois, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, of course, uh, it, it was. Uh, dismissed on on, uh, on on standing grounds effectively as i recall but uh it's been uh of course uh browder and company have been out there making a big deal about the fact that it has been dismissed and calling it a kind of a victory for for robot lawyers 
I don't, I don't think it's exactly that at this point. Uh, I think it's really more of a procedural ruling, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it was interesting that that happened as well. The ABA had a good article that kind of dove into the background of that and the founder. I, thought I included it in my legal tech news roundup on LinkedIn today, but I thought that was a good article. Yeah, that was the one I was trying to read when I discovered that I, <laughs> I when I wrote to Victor saying, how come I can't log into the damn ABA site? Yeah, it's our, it's our, it's our new- What's wrong with that site? After an it's extensive new, uh, investigation by the top editorial and business people at the ABA journal, they found out I hadn't paid my dues. It, 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 it's a new paywall. We want to see how persistent you are, you know, because then, then, then we really know like how, whether we're engaging our, our audience, just how badly they want to read a certain article. It caught me off guard. I mean, I've been, it's like, usually I just log in and always ask me, you know, I go to read an ABA journal story. It says, you know, do you have to, you have to log in? I click log in, it logs me in. And uh, this time it was, this time it was just like, it was taking my password. It wasn't telling me it was like, wouldn't give me any kind of warning. It was just kept like no. recycling this page. It was driving it, me crazy. Anybody else found it somewhat ironic that Bob was unable to read an article about do not pay when he had not paid. <laughs> we should have hired Browder. We should have hired Browder to, to, to help you challenge that. That's right. I should have gotten Browder to sue the ABA. <laughs> I'm sure I could have gotten $5 out of it or something. Uh, I, anyway. I, though, that I, I actually found Do Not Pay useful the other day because I could not for the life of me find the lost and found link for JetBlue. And so I Googled it. And the first thing that came up was Do Not Pay. Here's a link to all the airline lost and founds. So I'm like, okay. That seems like your lane. Go for it. That's awesome. That's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, so we got a couple of other stories this week that are all kind of related to the whole idea of using uh, generative AI for uh, legal research or for creating illegal content in, in some way, shape or form or another, starting with a, a big study, uh, Nikki, that you uh, cited this week, uh, a, a actual scholarly SSRN downloadable PDF thing where, where somebody really went in depth on this issue. Yeah, um, it was uh, Daniel Schwartz, who I have been on a few panels with. Um, about generative AI tagged me in it um, in his LinkedIn post about it. And um, I thought that it was a really interesting, um, uh, reached some really interesting conclusions about some of the value of generative AI and um, for legal practitioners. So here's a link, oh, you just put it in there, I great. In, yep. So um, essentially what they did was they conducted a randomized controlled trial of AI assistance effect on human legal analysis. And they took 60 students from the University of Minnesota Law School and gave them each four separate tasks to complete that were legal tasks. And um, using uh, GPT-4 or without using it. And then after, they after they'd received training on how to use it effectively. And then they blind graded the results and tracked how long it took them to complete each task. And then they analyzed that and came up with some conclusions about uh, and the key takeaways were that the quality, uh, there was a quality improvement when GPT-4 was used that was a slightly improved legal analysis, but it was inconsistent. Um, there was an increased speed. AI significantly enhanced, enhanced the task completion speed overall. Uh, the benefit was greater for lower skilled participants. So, um, you know, the, the more you knew, uh, the less helpful it was for you. Uh, and it um, uniformly uh, had a time reduction across the board. They all completed tasks better, um, no matter who you were looking at using the AI. And um, that there was a positive user experience. The students reported higher satisfaction using it and correctly identified the tasks where it was most effective. And then the conclusions were implications for the legal field were that law schools should integrate, integrate AI training I feel like going, duh, but I think the law schools need to be shown studies that indicate that because a lot of them won't otherwise. Um, legal professionals should embrace AI now with approaches that vary according to practice area. And that's an, uh, another sort of duh recommendation, but it's also a really important one. And I don't mean to diminish the recommendations. The study is a wonderful one. Um, but you know, if lawyers don't already think they should embrace it, they ought to because otherwise there's no way they're going to keep up. And that legal service purchasers need to reconsider in-house versus external management of legal matters and billing processes. And I think that's an important one because the 
it just shows one way that it's going to significantly impact the practice of law and outsourcing of certain tasks. Like if you don't need to outsource and uh, you're going to save a ton of money if you can handle this stuff in-house rather than sending it to outside counsel. So, uh, and I think you can say that across the board, corporations or not, but I thought it was a really interesting study and um, it's definitely worth uh, taking a look at. And I wanted to highlight it for that reason. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, so I read all of the synopsis <laughs> and and not beyond it. Um, but one of the thought points, a couple of the points I thought were interesting in the synopsis, uh, you know, one was that they they uh, said that it it inconsistently improved the quality of participants' legal analysis, uh, but did in fact induce large and consistent increases in speed. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, but then it also said that they um, participants reported increased satisfaction from using AI to complete legal tasks in, in follow-up surveys, uh, and that they got better at predicting, where is this now? They got better at predicting for which tasks it would be useful, which again suggests there is a learning curve around this stuff and that you need to kind of figure out what it's right for and what it's not right for and how best to use it. Um, so it was good to see that kind of validated in some kind of a, a study here. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a thing a couple of weeks ago, uh, my, my piece on the big uh, TR uh, presentation we went to uh, that, that talked about that too, that I, I, think, I think there's something to be said for the early days of this AI adoption. It's going to be more about human, humans understanding how they think than how to use the AI. It's going to be us kind of figuring out how how do I how do I come to the conclusions I come to as a lawyer that are now hardwired in my brain that oh I look at this and I know this means that I that, that this kind of a dissent means that it's useful for this purpose like all of those kind of processes are going to be what we learn uh, probably faster than we ever would have interrogated them otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't uh, I think it was Jordan Furlong wrote a piece that I read. Talking about about that, that to get a useful a useful answer, it would require lawyers to to think more like lawyers in analyzing legal problems, and maybe we've been doing in research for a while. No, it was kind of interesting. I don't have the site to it. I just saw it maybe today or yesterday, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we were talking. I mean, we we're talking on this show, and I think someone was was mentioning in the um, in the chat. Is I mean, you know, more. More and more, we're seeing, you know, like people, like when people are hiring, they're looking for people who have experience, with, not just with generative AI tools, but also like, you know, like kind of constructing these searches and kind of, you know, figuring out how to how to how to narrow things down and like having experience with like kind of with with these kind of large large data sets and whatnot. And so, I mean, look, if people are looking for um, competitive advantage out there, they're looking to try to you know distinguish themselves in this market and looking for a way that they can you know always you know at least have a job for you know. Until 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 the robots take all the take all the legal jobs away, this might be the way to go. You know, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a good skill to have regardless. And um, you know, if if it, if it gives you a leg up on a lot of people that you'd be competing with, then I don't yeah I don't see why you wouldn't do it. Well, I, uh, on the other hand, uh, there were Steve. You had a couple of stories this week that that maybe are kind of connected <laughs> to each other in the sense that they right. both deal with. Uh, at least either fears of or downsides of uh, using generative AI yeah, for drafting. Yeah. But the first one was um, some proposed rules out of the Fifth Circuit. It seems like anytime the Fifth Circuit does something, it makes my steam come out of my ears, and this is no different. <laughs> uh, and, and when I first read it, I think, oh, you know, that's no big deal. I mean, other courts have done this. If you use generative AI in a filing, then you have to say that you've done it, and then you have to verify that all the citations are correct. And that's, you know, that's, I think there's a lot of things wrong with that. And we've talked about that before, but then they, they went on and said it, it not only applies to lawyers, it applies to unrepresented litigants, pro se litigants. And that, I mean, that's, to me, that's just terrible. I mean, how, a pro se litigant can't afford a lawyer most of the time. So, you know, they may not, so now they have this tool that can help them and maybe they don't get it, it doesn't get it a hundred percent right, but it's going to produce something that looks better and sounds better and will be given more stature by the 
or more reading by the court. And yet you're going to say, okay, but you have to go verify all these citations that are in there. Well, like, how are they going to do that? Like, <laughs> are they going to call, you know, Paul call up their Thomson Reuters application and check the sites? I mean, it, it just seemed like it put a sort of intolerable burden on, on pro se litigants. And, you know, I mean, I could hear, hear courts saying, well, you know, we're going to get all these pro se applications and how are we going to tell which is pro se and which is data lawyer because they're all going to be equally quality and like, well, like, you can see who signed it, whose name is at the bottom, and go find out if they're a lawyer or not. <laughs> you can do some frigging work on your own. <laughs> so I, I just, you know, I just thought it was kind of a terrible, I, I, bad enough to impose this kind of obligation on lawyers. It's really bad to try to put it on unrepresented, uh, represented people that are that are proceeding pro se. And then the other one that I found was about the Colorado lawyer who, like our friend in New York, used chat GPT, found some citations, plugged the citations in, didn't read them. And just like our friend in um, New York, he got caught uh, by the judge. Um, and the judge suspended him from the practice of law for a year. Um, apparently, if he behaves himself for 90 days, he can get his license back. And I'm not sure what the rules in Colorado are. I mean, in in my state, I don't think a judge can suspend you from the practice. That has to be the bar association that does, but or the Supreme Court. But in any event, in Colorado, I guess I guess you can. And it all sort of goes to show you that you know there there are remedies out there, short of these sort of measures that uh, you know tell us all. And if you use generative AI, we want to know it, and then we're going to discount your brief because it may not be right, and so on and so forth. Just like in New York, I mean, there was a little bit more to the story. Apparently, the the, the court asked the lawyer in Colorado, did you, did you use a, a generative AI? And he said, oh, no, my, my legal intern did this. And I guess I guess he or she screwed up. <laughs> then ultimately, he had to fess up, you know. I mean, so so this is a, a year's suspension may in part be for like lying to the court when you were caught. <laughs> I'm not real sure, but it, it was not as clean as, it, you know, oh, he, he used chat GPT and got some bad citations. But, or for just yeah, being in just being a dick and blaming your intern. Yeah. I mean, right. yeah. so, right. so I, I, I covered this when it first, when it first got revealed, when he first told the judge about it, uh, not so much the suspension. And certainly back then I read it very differently because it was somewhat concurrent with the New York situation and the way in which it seemed to play out then was the judge said some of the cases were wrong. He said, Oh, well, a legal intern co compiled this. So maybe that was the issue. Then the New York situation happened, and then he, as soon as that came out, what was going on there, he went to the court and said, you know what, actually, it appears as though we used chat GPT, that's the problem. And I felt, I felt much more sympathy toward him, because yeah. I felt like he was saying, I wouldn't have known this was an issue, but I just saw what happened in New York, and apparently this is a thing that can happen, mm -hmm. so I'm informing you now. Uh, so I actually was a little shocked that this punishment was as bad or in case in this case worse than New York because I, I had a lot more sympathy for this particular person um but yeah no it's uh and I do think in Colorado I do think their disciplinary stuff runs through their Supreme Court ultimately so I I think I think it does go down that route I kind of remember that from bar exam stuff anyway it was it was interesting that the, the the original suspension was a year and one day, as I recall. And I was like, <laughs> a year and one day. I mean, what? <laughs> we'll get that one. But there must be some significance that to that day. Yeah, I think that converts it from like a minor transgression to a uh, major one okay. or something like that. So yeah, so like you have to report it if it's like something like that. Uh, but yeah, when the <laughs> when the diploma privilege stuff was going on, when the during the lockdown and COVID and whatever, uh, Colorado was one of those places that was threatening people who criticized forcing everyone to take the bar exam in person with disciplinary stuff. So I got a weird crash course in Colorado discipline. The other, the other thing on that, uh, just on the Fifth Circuit thing to point out is that this, it's still a proposed rule. It's yeah, not still been adopted, yeah. it's out for comment, but it, this is the first time a federal circuit court as opposed to a, a federal right. district court or, or a state court has, has, had a, has, has put forward a, a proposed rule like this which uh, kind of makes it all that much more 
potentially significant, I guess, in a, in a sense, uh, I, you know, Mark and, and Palmer in the, in the chat pointed to Judge Slagle's uh, post that if you hadn't uh, hadn't seen it, um, take a look at it uh, up on LinkedIn. But, you know, I, I mean, again, he's he's made the point that I know Nikki's made on this show and others have made on this show that, I mean, the rules already cover this. I mean, the, right. the, that's what I don't understand. I mean, the 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 the, the rules of, of competence already essentially cover this. And I, I don't, I just don't know what courts think they're doing by, by requiring this certification um, other than catering to some kind of a panic over, over a new technology is really what right. all it comes down to. And and what the cynic, the like cynic in me thinks that, you know, part of the motive may to be, oh, this will be a convenient way to just get rid of all those pro se people that we don't want to mess with anyway. <laughs> yeah. well, not that, like, you know, not because, I mean, the Fifth Circuit is a very liberal court. so that, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Fifth Circuit's totally reasonable. Good call. <laughs> Sorry, well, what I was saying is it, it, it says it must, must further certify that no generative A artificial intelligence program was used in drafting. I mean, what I mean, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, we understand what that means, but like most pro se litigants, are they going to know Not what that clue. means? I mean, I mean, yeah. those be like, oh no, I didn't use a generative, I, I used chat GPT. Like, what I mean, right. lawyers don't know what that means? Like, I'm like, people, yeah, I'm, and just the wording yeah. of it is just so so stupid. Like, certify that you didn't use it or. If you did use it, you looked it over. I'm just like, even if I lived in a world where I thought these orders were worth having, just be like, hey, I sign here that if I used AI, I checked it over. I mean, it's just all so, I mean, this whole concept of people, oh, I never used generative AI in it. Like, it's just in all these things you don't even know you're using. I don't know. I just, I won't. I said on, on, on LinkedIn that I would save my rant for today, and I'm trying to not rant, so I will stop. <laughs> other people what are you saving it for? I Don't agree with this is the time to let it all out. Right. I totally agree with you. Another um one or two people commented on one of my posts and said something similar uh along the same lines, which is just the idea that people don't always know when they're using it and they're gonna use it for all different aspects of research and writing, you know, and it's already baked into some things like, and so it just seems ridiculous to require that. I agree that it's built into the rules. And I also feel that way about the ethics opinions. I don't think there are necessarily opinions needed, but I also think that lawyers aren't going to use this tech till they get some kind of guidance. So I kind of liked California's guidance. I think we talked about that last time. Like, I, I feel like that just gives them a security blanket to hold on to so that they feel like if they're doing it, they're doing it right. So that's why I kind of welcome some of these ethics opinions or guidance, not because I think they're necessary, but if they're done in the right way, they're going to help. But that's a different issue, you know, get us over that hump. But that's a different issue than these orders, which I think are just unnecessary. I totally agree with the judge, what the judge, uh, Judge Schlegel said about it and what you yeah. just said about it as well. Like guidance is great. Like give people all the guidance in the world. I think there's a lot of people that need even more guidance out there. But this like, I don't even know what half these judges like. Like you said, it's baked into so many tools. Like, can they, you know, absolutely identify <laughs> what tool just, was used that had AI in it? Like, just, everyone always brings up like a, the Grammarly example. Like, really? Yeah. I just had a funny. I just had a funny thought about the Fifth Circuit. So, does that mean like all the law clerks in the Fifth Circuit will <laughs> now now have to have to say in their memos to their judges? Oh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I was going to I was going to turn to Joe and talk about this, uh, whether ChatGPT is smarter than the Supreme Court. But now the, the peanut gallery is clamoring for the double space case. So I don't know if we <laughs> need to go right, go right to that. And why, why keep them waiting? Uh, fair enough. It is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it is. Uh, it is a wild case. So is some are we all ready for some typographic fun? Uh, the. <laughs> <laughs> the issue in this case, uh, so a there was there's a lawsuit going on, uh, you know, plaintiffs' firms against a conglomeration of big law firms. Uh, the big law firms decided. By, to, wait, by the way, this actually relates to the Fifth Circuit rule yeah. because the Fifth Circuit rule amends their certification, which is all about certifying that you complied with their typographical requirements. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. does actually. There, it sort of segues into this case. Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. Ten out of ten. Uh, so the. <laughs> The uh, the requirements for briefs are that they be in 12-point font and double-spaced. Uh, the plaintiffs put in a motion 
the defendants then uh, led by Cleary Gottlieb, but also uh, Locke Lord and Baker Donaldson and Butler Snow, I believe, were all involved, uh, filed a motion demanding that the court hold the plaintiffs to the proper regulations on typing. Uh, their position is that they weren't actually using double space. They were gaming the system to have less space between lines, and therefore they got seven extra pages on one motion and 17 extra pages on a summary judgment motion by gaming the system. Uh, that Microsoft, you know, you hit double space and it would have been XYZ long and this was less. Uh, so whatever. Uh, the response to that, though, I thought was way too verbose. It was like 59 pages of, of motion and exhibits, which was far too much. However, it was damning in response. Uh, the defendants went through and began with what I thought was probably all they needed to write, which was we wrote in 12-point font, the spaces in between are 24, that is double, that is what double space means. Uh, that would have been sufficient for me. Uh, however, it becomes a text story and spirals as they go into the reason why the cause of the plaintiff uh, of the defendant's side's confusion is that Microsoft, as well as most of the other major software word processing units, they don't talk about word perfect for some reason. I don't know. Uh, but they they actually make it 28 uh, by default, It's which is 233% of uh, spacing, which is more than double. Uh, so that's the default and the people use. This prompted defense to make the argument that it seems as though the plaintiff, uh, uh, no, plaintiffs to make the argument that it seems as though the defense is saying that we should define double space by what Microsoft says double space is. But that would be bad, they argue, for many reasons, one of which was Microsoft's actually changed that number multiple times over the years, which means that it's an arbitrary number. And the only real number we can affix ourselves to is 12 times two, which I thought was really compelling too. But then they got into some really serious policy arguments, which again, at this point, they had, they had me at multiply by two, but they got into some serious arguments, uh, some of which are the same that we were just talking about in Steve's story, that they make the argument that how is it that we can, you know, this is a disservice to pro se litigants who don't necessarily have the money to shell out for a Microsoft license. If we're going to define it by how Microsoft arbitrarily chooses it at any given point, then, you know, we're forcing everybody to buy Microsoft licenses when maybe they don't want to do that. Uh, and if we and, uh, and yeah, and they, they just said that that would be woefully unfair. It would also be inappropriate for the government to be choosing pick winners and losers in technology battles by deciding that Microsoft is the one who's right about what it is. And ultimately, you should just multiply it by two. And I, I was incredibly swayed by all of this. Uh, the most of the reason I wrote this story, though, is that the judge responded with, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Shut up, which was the right answer uh, on a lot of ways. Uh, but as I started writing it about the funny judge's response, I thought the judge literally says, you all need to say less uh, anyway. Uh, but I, uh, as I read it, I was like, you know, this is actually a tech story. This is about how we kind of are allowing vendors to dictate what reality is. Uh, reality is multiply by two. And we've allowed Microsoft to tell us, no, double space is what happens when I hit the button that Microsoft says is double bodes poorly for the future of AI, I suppose. That's all. Thank you. Uh, I think Dennis, I think Dennis Kennedy had the best point in the chat. And he said, Imagine how, how much clients had to pay for this wonderful discussion. <laughs> right? Oh, that's, that's very pages. true. I can't imagine what the bill for that would be and the explanation for why it was necessary. But how did they figure it out? That's the other thing. So like, so yeah, like someone, someone else was like, well, did they use a ruler and like, you know, or they run it into the, did they, well, did they put it into their own their own, it, uh, it, their own word processor and check it? Yeah. In fairness, uh, when you look at the two, it's real clear. Uh, it is a noticeable difference. One of them seems a lot smaller. You know, I, what I also love, though, and I made this kind of the kicker to the article, is despite all of this complaining about how much extra room they got over this double spacing, whatever, uh, the plaintiff side, who had, who was the, the in the right here, in my opinion, 
they engage in the thoroughly modern practice of putting one period after a one space after a period like normal modern fonts require and Cleary and the gang were continuing to put two and I'm like you know you can't really complain about losing space when you're the ones doing this stupid thing still you're just throwing spaces away every sentence yeah all over the place (laughs) Think how many extra lines you could get with all those spaces. <laughs> you know, yeah, I still have, I still have writers that 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 insist on doing the two space thing after a period, and it drives me nuts uh. because the first time I turned something in when I was at ALM, actually the first the first time I turned something in, uh, one of my very first stories, I got yelled at by the editor in charge for for doing the two space thing. And I, I've been t- I've, I've been taught that since I was in grade school, two spaces after a period. Yeah. So I got yelled at, and I've never done it again. I've never done it since. So there's writers that still do it. Well, it goes back to the days of print journalism. You wanted to fit as many words into a line as you could, and you wouldn't want to have those extra spaces taking up much needed space. Yeah. But I mean, if, now, so if somebody would litigate the serial comma, there's a real issue that needs to be decided by the Supreme yeah, Court. Right. But we need a definitive I mean, ruling on that. Right. Yeah, we're <laughs> much more split as a group on that one, I believe. Yeah. Hasn't it? Hasn't it been? Didn't Justice Kagan write a thing on that a few years ago? I can't remember. <laughs> Gee, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'll, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Well, if, if she did, I'm sure the conservative members of the court were taking the opposite side for whatever her position was. <laughs> oh, all one right. Thing I don't think anyone's talking about, Bob, that I think we should at least footnote is um, uh, Justice O'Connor dying. Yeah. yeah. I today, think we should just acknowledge. Yep. Yeah, I really admire it. Sad to see. Yep, I did too. Um, I'm like Debbie Downer. (laughs) Really, yeah. I was just going to do make a funny transition, and now I just feel like I'm going to pull out a handkerchief. And (laughs) she was uh, was how old was she? Ninety or ninety three? Ninety three, I think. Yeah, yeah. She's in bad health for a while. I think. Right. Correct. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, And unlike some. Justice has actually left the court when she was in bad health. Um, well, um, well, I think she later said she regretted she, she regretted retiring uh, because of what happened after. Yeah. Like, well, well yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, proceed my story this week with a trivia question, which is uh, what legal tech founder was formerly in a punk band that opened at CBGB. Nobody knows. R.I.P. Shane McGowan. nobody heard them. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the founder was Michael Sander of Docket Alarm. Mm. And I learned that as I was interviewing Michael this week uh, because Michael uh, has now left V Lex. That was a story I reported this week. Uh, after uh, not, you know, what is it? Seven r- months, roughly after V Lex acquired Fastcase. Fastcase had acquired Docket Alarm, uh, and Michael had originally founded uh, Docket Alarm way back uh, twelve years ago or so, while he was still an associate at a at a big firm practicing intellectual property law. So. It was a notable event, uh, his leaving uh, and uh, the timing of it is is, is interesting. Uh, I think uh, I, I, I don't I, from from everything I can I can tell they're not. You know, it, it was a clearly a, a mutual thing. I, I mean, nobody asked Michael to, to leave uh, or anything like that. Uh, and I think it was more that he just decided this was a good time for him to pursue some other ideas he had for startups uh, and to focus more on kind of some of the his some of the things that he originally wanted to work on that that kind of ended up going off in in one direction, but he might have wanted to go off in a different direction a little bit. Uh, And uh, now uh, VLEX has already hired somebody else to take over the whole docket alarm uh, uh, group of product group and, and lead that somebody who had previously worked at Gavalytics as their head of product before they went out of business. Um, but I think it, it, it you know, the, the uh, sort of the intrigue and the drama around it is, is a little bit points to just how important uh, this, this kind of data is going to be going forward uh, in this era of, of large language models and how 
there are so many opportunities, you know, when certainly when VLEX uh, uh, merged with, with Fastcase, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, line they were talking about was the importance of uh, being able to build uh, kind of a, a whole new scale of, of generative AI products by uh, based on the data they already have, but then kind of expanding and collecting similar data from basically all over the world and building on the data that VLEX has as well. Uh, so I thought it was interesting. I mean, Mike, Michael did a really good job, I thought, with Docket Alarm and really deserves credit. And uh, I don't know how many of you were around in, in the days when he was kind of first building that and he, really right up until the time Fastcase acquired it. But he was like a one man show. I mean, this guy was like a workaholic who was just doing working night and day to pull in these different data feeds from different courts and, and putting it all together and creating this product. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was a he was an innovative uh, innovative guy who had the foresight to see the importance of this kind of data and uh, maybe a loss for VLEX. He supposedly will still be consulting with them, but uh, uh, but uh, be interesting to see what he does next. And uh, I know uh, Stephanie and I will be in Miami next week and uh, he will be there, I, I understand it. So oh, maybe cool. we'll get a chance to chat with him a little bit there. What was his band? <laughs> uh, it was called, um, oh God. Just had it's called Docket Alarm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, it not, it not, not a bad name for a band. Yeah, it's not a bad band, band name at here. all. Uh, it, it was not. So if you Google it, you'll like not find anything about it except one, one image that the owner of CBGB posted and one little video on YouTube that Michael might have posted when he was like 10 years old or something. Uh, no, a little older than that, but uh, it's called Homer and the Sexuals. Uh, but, what happens uh, as CBGB stays as CBGB. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, all right. Uh, what else? Well, so uh, we could talk about your other story there, Joe, which was kind of related, but kind of funny. The uh, Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, it's um, got a couple of minutes left. You want to drop that in? Sure. Uh, so the the deal with that is uh, Larry Lessig uh, put up, uh, put the, this through. To, I actually saw it through uh, another Harvard law professor, Larry. I, uh, Larry tried to put this up and pointing out that that the other Larry had had a, only I'm trying to open it at the same time here. Uh, yeah. Oop, yeah. Uh, that the other, uh, that Lessig had uh, run a test with GPT, uh, putting it through its paces on Citizens United and campaign finance law generally. Uh, and it, and he'd asked questions. GPT gave him the wrong answer, but mostly the right reasoning. Uh, and then the, the interesting thing about the exchange, which he put up uh, in full, was that he then starts Socratic methoding the the AI the same way that I assume they all do to their students, uh, saying, well, you said this, but you also said this. So what does that mean? Well, you raise this case. Well, you know, given that case, doesn't that mean that there's some tension with this? And it was interesting because it showed and this goes back to kind of the conversation about how I think ultimately this is going to teach us how we think a little bit more than we're going to learn about how it from AI. Uh, as that method went on, the system got better at explaining what was going on. Uh, it, you know, it was giving kind of a, oh, well, Citizens United's the law and it means this. And the more less asked questions and raised hypotheticals, the more the system started saying, yeah, you know, I guess that would be a problem. I guess that does undermine the reasoning. It, it really was like watching a 1L get confronted with good questions about why the law itself is a problem. Uh, and it reminded me also that there's a danger to some of these. Uh, if, if AI chills our curiosity, if we start saying, hey, what's the answer to this? And it gives us an answer and it looks right. And we say, that's the answer. And we don't engage in this sort of probing. It could be a problem because if you took the answer that it initially gave in this exchange, which was quote unquote, right. All, you know, it was a little misworded, but right. 
and didn't push further, you wouldn't get at the fact that the Citizens United decision is incredibly flawed in a lot of places. And it's it's that kind of inquiry and interrogation of these laws that gets to some kind of a truth. And as AI has a tendency, you know, this is not just the current generation, all AI has a tendency to, to risk garbage in, garbage out. And in an era where there are a lot of courts, we've already talked about the Fifth Circuit a bit. I don't know why I mentioned them apropos of nothing. But there are a lot of courts producing garbage in that then produces garbage out. Uh, and so it was it was interesting. Lessig came away very impressed with it, which I think he should be. Like when when you go through the process, it does do some really impressive things. But I kind of was like, yeah, I could see how you're impressed because you're smart enough to ask the questions that need to be asked. But what of what of the person trying to deal with it who isn't already one of the world's foremost experts on American campaign finance law, right? Like then you don't know that next question to ask and you might feel like you've got the answer you want and stop. Uh, and that that was that was what I thought was super interesting about this whole exchange. Uh, showing kind of the potential, but also some of the, the the worry. Yeah, that was really interesting. Not at all, yeah. not at all parallel, but it, it for some reason reminded me of my case text coloring book I posted earlier this week using the uh, color me hero or whatever it's called color book hero thing uh, on on Chat GPT. But how it kept putting out these images. I did like the history of case text in a coloring book, but mm -hmm. it kept putting out these images that all look like lily white characters. And I said, can you try and make the characters look more diverse? And it gave me this mm -hmm. wonderful answer where it said, yes, creating illustrations with more visibly diverse characters is a great idea, especially for a coloring book intended for children. For the next illustration, I'll ensure that the characters are more distinctly diverse in their appearance. And then they looked exactly the same. They just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, granted it was a black and white coloring book, but but uh, uh, they didn't even have the, the, the slightest uh, bit of diverse look, look to them, but, uh, and, and as Jesse Adler pointed out to me earlier this week, it also can't spell, uh, but yeah. I knew that. Uh, anyway. Come on, Sam Altman, get on it. Yeah, get on now it. Now that you're back on the clock. Get on it. Uh, all right. Um, I'm going to just remind people that if they happen to be in New York this coming week on Thursday, there is a memorial for Monica Bay uh, Thursday night, uh, what is it, five to nine or something like that? Uh, and I have, here, let me put the post. There's, there is an RSVP if, if you want to be there, but uh, it, it's uh, at the Hilton, of course. Where else? And uh, it will, uh, there will be drinks and people can be encouraged to get up and share stories. There was a memorial yesterday in California uh, that I understand was uh, uh, decently attended by both. Uh, uh, journalism friends and California friends and family and legal tech people, uh, including a few who made the flight up from uh, from San from L.A. to San Francisco just just to go to that. So uh, that was good. Uh, and uh, as I said, Stephanie and I will be in Miami at the Legal Tech Fund Summit this week, and maybe we can get to see CJ and some of our Florida friends uh, down there uh, while we're down there as well. Uh, and uh, let's see, anything else we should talk about before we go? All right. Well, we'll be back next Friday with a recap of all of that. And uh, hope to see you all then. And hope you all have a great week. Bye, everyone.